0: I can't imagine any of you really need to be told that Kathleen Ray who is tonight's speaker uh, is of course the founder of the townhouse Academy it's often said that uh, I think it was Henry Moore once said for every idea there is a physical size and we've often heard the expression that um, there's a, a right moment for every idea to come to fruition and it often seems to me although that is true Uh, I rather regret regret that uh, Kathleen founded the Academy in what I shall call the autumn of her years because um, had she been uh, a younger woman I'm sure we would have the benefit of many more talks by her than we have had but we have to count our blessings and once again she is here to give us the benefit of her wisdom and learning and as you will know This evening, the subject of the lecture is Yeats, the initiate. Now Kathleen has spent, I would think, well over half a century reading and studying Yeats, and she has come to believe that Yeats is the greatest of English, the greatest poet of the English language. And also, she tells me, she now thinks that he's the greatest thinker and philosopher, so to say, of the imagination in English literature. And Although it's not contained in the book, uh, she has, as some of you may have noticed, uh, on the bookstand outside, there is a book. Her, her book of Yeats studies is actually called Yeats: The Initiate. Although in this evening's talk is, in fact, an entirely new paper. I seem to recall that Kathleen, you told me, or oh, I should think six or seven years ago, my work is over. I'm not writing any more papers. <laughs> and since then, she's done about two more books, <laughs> and I guess she'll probably go on and do another book. You think the rate she's going she seems absolutely unstoppable but um, I want just to draw your attention to uh, the book Yeats the initiative It is a very amazing book and I like to think that if Yeats had ever saw such a book he would have seen that in a way although she's a very different poet from Yeats uh, Kathleen is always her own woman as it were as a poet Nonetheless, I think that book demonstrates that she is the imaginative heir to uh, Yeats's imaginative world. Uh, it is quite an amazing book, and I'm drawing special attention to your attention to it especially, because it, it's a rather expensive book, uh, but it has lots of illustrations, and Kathleen actually does enter completely into Yeats's world, in a way that no merely academic approach could ever do to Yeats. The book was produced under very difficult circumstances at the end of Liam Miller's uh, life. And alas, it contains many errors, and it never received a final proofreading. But don't let that put you off. Um, I imagine there are something like 50 of you here. There are two copies for sale outside, so there could, could be a good rugby scrum outside. But anyway, I would like just to draw your attention to the fact that... Uh, If any of you are seriously interested in knowing more deeply about Yeats's thought and his imaginative world, as far as I'm concerned, that is the book to have. So I won't waste any more time, Kathleen. I will ask you now if you'll read the paper. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Brian. I should say that in fact the title of my lecture is Yeats and the Learning of the Imagination oh thank you Uh, the uh, title of the book Yeats Initiate, never mind it doesn't really matter, it's what what the lecture contains that I hope will interest you and um, the academic world goes interminably on and on about Yeats and Ireland and so on they simply avoid the issue of what was in fact the deepest interest in Yeats's life which was a search for a spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual reality and um, as no other poet of this uh, century writing in English at all has compared with him and uh, of course these things, the academic world doesn't simply not want to know. It wants to not know. It would much rather not know because it is going to, uh, to upset the whole uh, materialist uh, basis of modern academia uh, with of course exceptions. We heard one in Temenos only a few weeks ago when we heard uh, Gravel Lindop's very fine lectures and we also heard Peter Abs. So Temenos collects all the people who are um, into this other um, view of reality, which Yates is the great master. In the course of my long lifetime, I have seen the meaning of the word poetry change. At the beginning of this century, the name of poet was honoured with the corresponding expectation from the poets of what I would venture to call food for the soul, meaning and values, beauty and wisdom of a kind which poetry and the other arts have traditionally been held to be the proper language. In, I suppose, every civilization before our own, knowledge has been concerned with such values, facts of mind, to use Coleridge's phrase, rather than facts of the material world, those immeasurable meanings and qualities with which human beings have been concerned at all times until a materialist science redefined reality in terms of the measurable and rational thought based on observable facts of an objective world. The reign of quantity, as it has been defined by the metaphysician René Guénard, in the title of a well-known book in which he challenges this still prevalent mode of thought, The modern movement of the early part of this century was in many ways the equivalent in the arts of the materialist worldview of modern science, whose boundaries virtually preclude values of former and other civilizations, since these are immeasurable and therefore without reality in terms of scientific knowledge. The age-old search for truth and beauty has been replaced by the observable, the immediate, and the process of change as values in themselves. Thus, the meaning of the words poetry and poet have become emptied of those meanings they once implied, possessing no authority of vision or wisdom or inspiration of any perception of, in Blake's words, eternal things displayed, The poet has no authority beyond that of any other professional user of words, the journalist, the politician, or any other recorder of information, and the name no longer merits the honor it once bestowed. Of course, this is a generalization, there are exceptions, but the prevailing climate of this civilization does not favor works of the imagination. There is a prevailing rejection, or perhaps more truly ignorance, of those regions of the mind, which are the true sources of poetry. It is perhaps not surprising that it is an Indian critic, India being the last great spiritually grounded civilization, Professor Ramesh Chandra Shah of Bhopal University, who asked the question, Had the traditionally valid expectation of a special and indispensable kind of wisdom from poets become untenable in today's cosmopolitan civilization, is it nothing more than a superior entertainment, as T.S. Eliot would have us believe? Yeats remains a poet in the traditional sense as an inspired speaker of wisdom, of truths and realities of the imagination, sealed with the mark of beauty, a word seldom used in modern discussion of the arts as something irrelevant to the recording of the grim or trivial realities of the daily secular world, nowadays called the real world. Eliot's The Wasteland is his lament for the passing of these traditional values and his four quartets, an attempt to recreate them on that wasteland. Yeats declares himself of the older tradition. We were the last romantics, chose for theme traditional sanctity and loveliness. Whatever's written in what poets name the book of the people, Whatever most can bless the mind of man Or elevate a, ram, a rhyme But all is changed That high horse riderless Though mounted in that saddle homer road Where the swan drifts upon the darkening flood Pegasus, the winged horse of inspiration Is riderless And the swan, ancient symbol of the soul Drifts upon a darkening flood the filthy modern tide, as Yeats elsewhere writes, the wasteland, the darkening flood. These two great poets were prophetic. Eliot has described as the wasteland, an experience we can all deeply recognize. But Yeats (coughs) saw the poet's task, as did his master William Blake, as being not to reflect the age, but to inspire it, to illuminate every age with a vision of higher realities, these being timeless and always accessible to those who raise their minds to those regions, raise their thoughts to heaven, as Blake so simply puts it. Contemporary preoccupation with the commonplace as such, deliberate ordinariness, simply is not in these terms poetry at all. For not only does it not originate in those higher regions of the mind, or the soul of the world, it negates the very existence of these. This is an age for which nothing is sacred, for a material order of objective facts is devoid of values whereas for poets of the imagination, to use Blake's resounding words, everything that (coughs) lives is holy. For science, there are no meanings or values, only facts. For the imagination, the song of the universe is holy, holy, holy. There is even a school of literary criticism which would exclude value judgments, since for those who equate knowledge with measurable information, Values of any kind are not a category. In contrast, for those for whom not matter but mind (coughs) is the primary reality, it is otherwise. For experience continually evaluates. Poetry and the other arts are the basic modalities of human thought. Not knowledge about, but knowledge of the thing itself, as music is itself its own meaning. Beethoven's quartets are not about anything. They are themselves the immediate communication of meaning, as indeed are the poems of any imaginatively inspired poet. Imaginative knowledge is immediate knowledge, like a tree or a rose or a waterfall or sun or stars. In contrast with the positivist school, I have used the phrase, the learning of the imagination, for the process of learning from, not about, those monuments of unaging intellect, as Yeats described the records of human wisdom and beauty embodied in the arts and philosophy. What then is that special and indispensable kind of wisdom described by the word imagination? The great French Ismaili scholar Henri Corbin, basing his definition on the Sufi writers, especially on the work of Ibn Arabi, has coined the term imaginal, imaginal, to describe that order of reality proper to the imagination, since the word imaginary is in popular usage understood as something unreal. The word imaginal is the equivalent of the Alam al-Mithal. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, perhaps Shusha could tell me. Of Alam
2: al-Mithal. Mithal.
1: mithal yes. Thank you. Image. Yes. Of the Persian philosophers of the imagination described by Kolbin at that region of the mind where meaning takes on form, and by the same agency, forms take on meaning. The imagination as understood by the Romantic poets is nothing less than the fundamental ground of knowledge. Coleridge, you will remember, in his famous definition, defines imagination in these words, which I'm sure you all know, or if you don't, you should. (laughs) The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all perception and the reflection in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. Western philosophy has been slow to discover what in the Indian schools is axiomatic: the presence within the finite self of the transcendent divine self, the living principle known as Satchit Ananda, being consciousness, bliss. This is Coleridge's living power and prime agent, which naive materialism has been slow to discover, although now it is obvious in terms even of science that an observing mind is the necessary condition for every observation. Coleridge's definition comes as close as it has hitherto been possible in the West to an affirmation of the universal ground of a god within. Coleridge, in his later years, withdrew into the religious snare of Christian theology, from what, as a poet, he knew. Ted Hughes's uh, remarkable essay on Coleridge, which has just been published by Fabers, will, will tell you what I mean about that. Um, and what Coleridge knew as a poet. Blake, more courageous or perhaps simply more clear-sighted, equates imagination or the poetic genius with the God within, and that God within, he calls Jesus. For him, Jesus was not the historical person of exoteric Christianity, but the divine humanity present in all humankind, hence his term, Jesus, the imagination. Jesus is God, he wrote. And by this, he meant imagination is God. His startling term, Jesus, the imagination, is the equivalent of the transcendent self of Vedanta, the Ananda of being itself. If Western philosophers might accept being and consciousness, only Blake would have understood that the third term, bliss, ananda, is in the very nature of being itself. Life delights in life, Blake writes. The soul of sweet delight can never be defiled. That is where poetry's especial contribution to the understanding of fundamental knowledge lies. And trees and birds and beasts and men, behold their eternal joy. Arise, you little glancing wings, and sing your infant joy. Arise and drink your bliss, for everything that lives is holy. If reality is an experience and not an object in space, it is a realm of values, of which the supreme value is the sense of the holy, the realm of the sacred. For lack of an adequate metaphysical structure, such as India possesses, the Romantic poets had to find their own terms in which to affirm the innate transcendent presence. Coleridge looked to the German philosophers, Blake to Immanuel Swedenborg, from whom he took the name and concept of his divine humanity. However, he made himself dazzlingly clear by the very simplicity of his affirmation. The imagination is not a state, it is the human existence itself, he wrote. Affection and love become a state when divided from imagination. The memory is a state always, and the reason is a state, created to be annihilated and a new ratio created. Whatever can be created can be annihilated. Forms cannot. The oak is cut down by the axe, the lamb falls by the knife, but their forms eternal exist forever. And Blake's Jerusalem concludes with an eloquent description of the creative power of imagination in the four worlds of the senses, feeling, reason, and vision, the four living creatures. Chariots of divine uh, humanity divine incomprehensible in beautiful paradises expand. These are the four rivers of paradise and the four faces of humanity fronting the four cardinal points of heaven going forward, forward, irresistible from eternity to eternity. In visions, in expanses of memory and intellect creating space, creating time, according to the wonders divine of human imagination throughout all three regions immense of childhood, manhood, and old age. There is no limit to the creative expansion of imagination. Coleridge's repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am For Blake, the human imagination is the infinite I am. As for the authors of the Upanishads, Yeats, who as a young man was the first editor of Blake's prophetic books, was familiar with these definitions of the imagination, and from the romantic poets, and Blake especially, his spiritual journey led him, one might say, by an inevitable progression to the Upanishads, of which, with his spiritual teacher Sri Purohitswami, he made the very beautiful translations published in 1937. At the time when Yates, as a young man, in collaboration with his father's friend, Edwin J. Ellis, was editing Blake's prophetic books. He was also studying the writings of Blake's own masters, Jakob Burma, Manuel Swedenborg, and more especially Swedenborg's <coughs> spiritual diaries, which had become fundamental source material for the work of psychical research begun during the 19th century and in which Yeats himself became deeply interested and in which he experimented over many years. This is not an aspect of Swedenborg's work in which Blake was greatly interested, though there are records of Blake's own experiences of the spirit world of the discarnate. On the death of his brother Robert, Blake saw his released soul ascending from the body and clapping his hands for joy. And his illustrations to Young's night thoughts show in a number of plates the spiritual forms of the dying, rising from their mortal bodies. Blake totally rejected the materialist philosophy, already becoming dominant in his lifetime and so did Yeats. Blake was a naturally gifted visionary and speaks of expanding or contracting his exalted senses as if it were the easiest thing in the world. Yeats knew otherwise Yet the whole purpose of his labor was to attain that vision. I had an unshakable conviction, he wrote, rising how or whence I cannot tell, that invisible gates would open, as they had opened for Blake, as they opened for Swedenborg, as they opened for Burma, and that this philosophy would find its manuals of devotion in all imaginative literature. As for those manuals of devotion, we discover throughout his writings, both poetry poetry and the marvellous critical and biographical writings, (coughs) and in a vision whose theme is inspiration itself, allusions both direct and implicit to a whole context of works of literature, history, and philosophy comprising Yeats's sacred books, He was widely and deeply read in both English and European literature and beyond. From the English poets he most loved, Blake and Shelley, Spencer and William Morris, to the paintings of Rossetti and Samuel Palmer, and certain novels of Balzac to Dante, the Japanese No Theatre and the Thousand and One Nights. Together with these, he made a study, with Lady Gregory's help, of the oral tradition of Western Ireland, the Jewish and Christian Kabbalah, the communications of mediums. His range of study went far beyond the prescribed limits of any university syllabus in pursuit of the learning of imagination. Where got I that truth? Out of a medium's mouth. Out of nothing it came, out of the forest loam, out of the dark night where lay the crowns of Nineveh. Erudition is scrupulous in the checking of sources, dates, and facts, but the checking of truth is another matter. It can be checked only by imagination itself. Writing in 1928 and his introduction to the second extensively re- rewritten edition of Vision*. Yeats records that the other day, Lady Gregory said to me, you're a much better educated man than you were 10 years ago and much more powerful in argument. And I put the tower and the winding stair into evidence to show that my poetry has gained in self-possession and power. He goes on to describe the beginning of a period of mediumistic communications received through his wife over a period of years. And I quote, Apart from two or three of the principal platonic dialogues, he goes on to say, I knew no philosophy, and that arguments with his sceptical father had drawn me from speculation to the direct experience of the mystics, citing Blake, Swedenborg and Burma. For many years he had been active in psychical research and as a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, he had done disciplined practical work in Kabbalistic magic. When he began to receive communications leading to the composition of A Vision, his spirit instructors encouraged him to read history and biography in order that I might give concrete expression to their abstract thought. (coughs) He also read Barclay, and from his wife's library two or three volumes of Wundt, part of Hegel's logic all Thomas Taylor's Plotinus a Latin work of Pico de la Mirandola a great deal of medieval mysticism I read all McKenna's incomparable translation of Plotinus some of it several times and went from Plotinus to his predecessors and his successors whether they were on her that is his wife's list or not and for four years now I've read nothing else Except now and then some story of theft and murder to clear my head at night. In other words, detective novels. <laughs> Although the more I read, the better did I understand what I had been taught. I found neither the geometrical symbolism nor anything else that would have inspired it, except the vortices of Empedocles. This list of Yeats's exceptions to his ignorance of philosophy would make a list longer than many a scholar's store of learning. Even so, we must take seriously Yeats's words when he writes that his readings were undertaken in order to confirm the communications of his invisible instructors. The learning of the imagination is not a matter of studying the imagination in the light of his extensive and deep reading, as in academia, but the scanning of written sources in the light of those mysterious communications from the deeps of the mind, the truth that comes out of a medium's mouth, or any rich, dark nothing, as he writes in the Gaias. I know now that revelation is from the self, but from that age-long memory itself that shapes the elaborate shell of the mollusk and the child in the womb, then that teaches the birds to make their nests, and that genius is a crisis that joins that buried self for certain moments to our trivial daily mind. Is not this only an elaborate confirmation of Plato's teaching that all knowledge comes from recollection of what we already know, by an amnesis, of what the universal self of the divine humanity already and forever knows, or the prophetic soul of the great world dreaming of things to come. It was in pursuit specifically of imaginative knowledge that he set himself to study in a learned school and with the same purpose that he set himself to expand his mind by magical techniques taught by the Hermetic Society of the Golden Dawn and by psychical research. He visited many mediums over many years before following his marriage, the discovery that his wife George possessed mediumistic gifts. She was herself a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn and I remember her telling me with some pride that it was she who had brought the works of Thomas Taylor the Platonists with her when they married. Yeats was concerned only with imaginative thought, not at all with the discursive rational thought on which modern Western civilization is grounded. In his autobiographies, he wrote a declaration of faith clear enough for those concerned with the learning of imagination, and not easy, one might have thought, to brush aside, even by those determined to brush aside what they themselves deemed irrelevant. I am very religious, he wrote, and deprived by Huxley and Tyndall, whom I detested, of the simple-minded religion of my childhood, I had made a new religion, almost an infallible church, of poetic tradition, of fardel of stories and of personages and of emotions, inseparable from their first expression, passed on from generation to generation by poets and painters, with some help from philosophers and theologians. I wished for a world where I could discover this tradition perpetually, and not in pictures and poems only, but in tiles round the chimney piece and in the hangings that kept out the draught. I had even created a dogma, because these imaginary people are created out of the deepest instinct of man to be his measure and norm. Whatever I can imagine those mouths speaking may be the nearest I can go to truth. When I listened, they seemed always to speak of one thing only, they, their loves, every incident of their lives were steeped in the supernatural. It's not surprising that Yeats's great work for Ireland was the creation of the Abbey Theatre, with Gordon Craig, the designer of its stage, and its galaxy of playwrights, seeing O'Casey, Lady Gregory, and the rest, to write words for those imaginary mouths to speak. And here I should point out that Yeats places the poets above the philosophers and theologians as the speakers of truth. Plato's three essential categories, the good, the true, and the beautiful, are represented by theologians, the philosophers, and the poets. As in India, ananda has its equivalent in the three values of Satyam, Shivam, Sundaram, with Sundaram, beauty, corresponding to Ananda, bliss. Philosophy and theology may recognize truth and goodness, but have little to say about Ananda and of beauty, which is its corresponding expression. Yates here sees the former as merely of some help, to the task of the poet and painter, which is to create beauty, to speak its language, and in whose absence the arts have little to offer. Beauty is for the poet the supreme wisdom, that special and indispensable kind of wisdom it has from time immemorial been the offering, which has from time immemorial been the offering of the poets. When my generation as students first read Eliot's The Wasteland, we were impressed by its difficulty and a whole academic generation busied themselves as following up the notes to that poem which Eliot himself provides, from Jesse Weston's work on the Grey Legend, the Sons of Lancelot Andrew, the plays of Webster, the works of Dante, Julian of Norwich, and the French Symbolist Poets. Eliot was indeed mapping out what he saw as the territory of his own poetic domain and that relevant to his time and place in history, whose points of reference fall for the most part within the mainstream of European history, and mainly Christendom. Universities find it very easy to teach Eliot, and in so doing, to mark out the frontiers of a known world. Eliot, too, makes his appeal to tradition, but he uses the word in a mainly historical sense, but Yeats uses the word tradition in a metaphysical sense to signify that learning of the imagination which derives its authority from the vision of eternal things displayed, as Blake, as always, luminously defines it. History has little to do with it. Yeats provides us with no notes, Though the terrain he mapped out is no less precise and more extensive than Eliot's, he does not so much display as conceal the immense field of his learning of the imagination in literature and the visual arts in philosophy and history. He disguises profound metaphysics and essential clues and indications, signposts in casual allusions, so that they are not apparent to the ignorant, but immediately illuminating to those who have begun to discover the landmarks in the terrain of the learning of the imagination. I remember the distinguished art historian Edgar Vind pointing this out and comparing Yeats in this respect to Botticelli, who disguised philosophic learning under the airy light vesture of the Muses and the Graces. We can read Yeats's work from beginning to end without noticing these learned clues to Porphyry's De Antronian Forum, Empedocles and Plotinus, to Gandhara Buddhist sculpture, or even to Blake and Shelley. We recognize his clues only as we ourselves become capable of doing so, and although the great territory of his learning may add to our understanding and our delight in his work, we can delight in it without knowing about the golden birds in the artificial trees of the emperor of Byzantium, or the great <coughs> great-rooted great blossomer of Kabir, the tree whose root is in God, or of porphyry's, honey of generation, that throws a soul about to enter this world into forgetfulness of its eternal nature. Yeats writes in his introduction to the second version of a vision addressed to Ezra Pound of the arbitrary, harsh, and difficult symbolism that has almost always accompanied expression that unites the sleeping and the waking mind. One remembers... (coughs) I'm so sorry... (coughs) One remembers the six wings of Daniel's angels, the Pythagorean numbers, a venerated book in the Kabbalah where the beard of God winds in and out among the stars, its hairs all numbered, those complicated tables that Kelly saw in Dr. D's Black Scrying Stone and the diagrams of Law's Burma where one lifts a flap of paper to discover both human entrails and the starry heavens. William Blake thought those diagrams worthy of Michelangelo, but remains himself almost unintelligible because he never drew the like. We can, those hard symbolic bones under the skin, substitute for a treatise on logic, the divine comedy, or some little song about a rose, or be content to live our thoughts. The treatise on logic is, of course, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, whose theology underlies Dante's poem. What a rich scattering of clues to be followed through many regions of human arts and thoughts, and none leads to a dead end, all open into rich domains of knowledge and wisdom for whoever follows them. There are not... These are not a display of recondite knowledge for its own sake, nor the kind of clues that academia likes to follow from one known source to another, but what a prospect Yeats opens to his devotees, whole worlds of knowledge excluded from our habitual fields of study. He spreads out before us like scattered treasures of the world's riches of beauty and wisdom, inviting us to explore unknown regions of mental worlds. And the final object of all these things is spiritual knowledge and understanding, is wisdom, the wisdom of beauty, of the little song about a rose that enables us to live our thoughts. Between Eliot and Yeats lies a watershed of civilization. When Eliot crossed the Atlantic before the First World War, he discovered in England and in Europe the treasury of an old civilization still precariously intact, already discovered by Henry James and his generation at a time when the great American collectors of the works of the Impressionist painters were made, and later came the Symbolists, the Cubists, and the Surrealists who've had such a profound influence in the United States. This was a period of great creativity also in poetry and literature, and the period before the Second World War, the years of entre deux guerres, was to see the beginning of the end of the old European civilization, the beginning of the modern movement, and the publication of The Wasteland and Eliot's other early works which foresees and experiences the breakup of Europe's cultural greatness and foretells a new dark age of barbarism. It is with the European experience that Eliot was to identify himself, and in his choice of the European religion, Christianity, great poet as he was, his work has justified his choice of that great past. His work partakes of the values of Christendom, it is moral, religious and grounded in history. Its, <coughs> its background is the modern secular world he so well understood, both at as American and from his chosen European perspective. As a student at Harvard, Eliot had made some study of Sanskrit and of Indian philosophy, and there are allusions to the Bhagavad Gita, both in the Wasteland and in the Four Quartets. But Christendom, he believed, provided the shared language in which he could best communicate with his readers. Thus, we find that the allusions to history and to literature in Eliot are mainly from European and Christian sources, to Dante, Shakespeare, the Grail legends, the poetry and devotional literature of the English 17th century, and so on. Asked by the Chilean poetess Gabriela Mistral on her visit to England on the occasion of her award of the Nobel Prize why he had abandoned his early studies in Indian philosophy, Eliot replied that he would have had to learn another language. Clearly he did not mean Sanskrit as such but was speaking of the poetic language of a shared culture and the language of Christendom he saw as that shared context to which he belonged. Both Eliot and Yeats are world poets and Eliot's popularity at Indian universities is proof enough that where Western civilization travels, his work is studied and understood. But Yeats saw the future as indeed he saw the present, not in terms of Christendom with its historical and religious context and its bent towards secular materialism and scientific studies. But in terms of that oriental philosophy, whose premises are quite other, not matter, but mind is, according to that philosophic tradition, the basis and ground of reality, and all knowledge takes its origin, not from measurement, but from experience. This, in India, seems as axiomatic, as do the materialist premises to the modern West. Whereas to the modern Western materialist civilization, knowledge consists in the accumulation and organizing of information from the external world, for the Oriental philosophy, knowledge is obtained by extending the frontiers and changing the perception of the mind itself, the scientific in contrast with the imaginative ways of approaching reality. There has always been in the West an excluded tradition of imaginative knowledge, and as we have seen, Yeats was deeply versed in this Western esoteric tradition. And although Western technological culture is everywhere penetrating India and the Far East, Yeats nevertheless saw what Jocelyn Godwin in a recent book called the Theosophical Enlightenment as the strongest current of change in the modern West. This is taking place in many forms, from the opening of the unconscious realms of the mind by studies of psychology, to the many schools of yoga and eastern forms of meditation at present spreading in the West. Eliot placed himself within the Western cultural and religious tradition with its emphasis on faith, morals and social order. Yeats throughout his life was drawn rather to the oriental path of spiritual enlightenment and wisdom, described by Yeats's one-time friend, A.K. Kumaraswamy, as knowledge absolute, the goal to which religions are themselves only ways and means. Yeats's early master, William Blake, had written that all religions are one, and that one religion he calls the of the religion of Jesus, which of course is not the church, but the religion of the imagination, of Jesus, the imagination, the perennial wisdom itself. Antiquity taught the religion of Jesus, Blake de Cares. And in the same sense, Blake's contemporary and one-time friend, Thomas Taylor the Platonist, described the universal theology of which Platonism is the Western tradition as coeval with the universe itself. In this sense, it is not religion as such that is in question, but theosophical knowledge, using the word in its wider sense and not as limited to the theosophical society founded by H. P. Blavatsky. Jocelyn Godwin describes the channels in which, from the Renaissance to the 20th century, this esoteric theosophy has flowed, and it was in this current that Yeats placed himself, from the time of his first early association with the Theosophical Society as a student in Dublin, to his final commitment to Vedanta, and his translations of the ten principal Upanishads in collaboration with his master Sri Purohitswami. In that tradition he was learned and was himself a part of that theosophical revolution. Both Eliot and Yates were traditionists, but it must be understood in different senses of that word. Eliot used the word primarily in a historical sense, using the word history to include the course of ideas and of religious history. We know more than the past, he wrote in his essay on tradition and the individual talent. Yes, and the past is what we know. The whole sequence of the past is changed by the addition made by every present. The idea is an important one, but it is not the concern of Yeats and the theosophists, for whom what is at issue is not history, but the knowledge which is timeless. This tradition has never been the concern of the church or churches, although there have at all times been certain mystics and mystical theologians, both Catholic and Protestant, rather tolerated than encouraged, Blake and his own masters, Burma and Swedenborg, among them. Yeats was understood neither by Eliot, who was himself dismissive of Yeats's occult studies, nor by the left-wing poets of the modern movement, Auden and his friends. Michael Roberts, compiler of the faber book of modern verse, and the Marxist critic George Orwell all these, unable to dismiss Yeats as a poet, scoffed at his esoteric studies and Auden in a condescending poem written at the time of Yeats' death allowed that although he was silly like us he is to be excused on account of his writing well. This ignorant and complacent judgment revealed the total failure of Yeats's younger contemporaries to have any conception of Yeats's superior knowledge or of its nature. They thought him old-fashioned because he was indifferent to modern science, used traditional forms, and was not left-wing in his politics. Time is already beginning to show that Yeats's work contributed to a far more fundamental revolution now taking place in the world, the turning of the tide of a materialist civilization. The three provincial centuries are over, Yeats wrote in a letter to his friend Sturgeon Moore, wisdom and poetry return. The prophecies of the great himself a student of history from the standpoint of the ancient cosmology of sequence of ages and an alternation of Iron Age dominated by materialist values and Golden Age by spiritual values, himself created his own symbolic diagram of the Gaias and saw the present century, not as the dawn of utopia, as did the left-wing poets, but at the terminal phase of Western civilization and the onset of a new dark age, as did Eliot also. But Yeats foresaw an inevit- inevitable spiritual revival and return to wisdom and poetry, the values of spiritual knowledge and the perennial philosophy. The Rosicrucian tradition, Kabbalah, the theosophy of Burma, the spiritualist movement, Yeats studied them all, but not all his sources belong to an excluded esoteric knowledge, but are rather to be found in the mainstream of civilization, in the works of Plato and Plotinus, the classical writings of the Sufis, and of course the great central tradition of India, including the Buddhist branch. As an art student in Dublin, he, with his friend, the poet-mystic A.E. George Russell, was a member of the Dublin branch of the Theosophical Society, and later in London, Yeats met H.P. Blavatsky herself. A.E. remained in lifelong commitment to the Theosophical Movement, but Yeats followed the path of magic with the Order of the Golden Dawn, R. R. and A.C., Rosa Rubiae et Aria Crucis, and his wide-ranging studies were all related to discovering that same tradition, he did not exclude Christianity if understood against a background not of history, but against the background of a mystical understanding such as the Celtic church inherited from the Druids. Byzantium is the holy city for Yeats in which he saw the highest expression of Christendom and which he himself uses in his poetry at the type and realization of the city of the imagination flowering in the arts as never before or since in recorded history. India inevitably lay at the end as it did at the beginning of Yeats's quest as the fullest expression of the civilization of the imagination and the perennial wisdom A Brahmin teacher, Mohini Chatterjee, Chatterjee, had been sent over to Dublin from the London headquarters of the Theosophical Society, commemorated in a poem Yeats wrote long after, specifically for his teaching of the oriental view of reincarnation, central to Yeats' later studies of the evidence of spiritualism on the soul's continuous and rebirth, a belief shared incidentally by Blake who was familiar with the Neoplatonic teachings, and specifically with the work loved also by Yeats, Porphyry on the Cave of the Nymphs. Among Yeats's early poems are several on an imagined India of lotuses and peacocks and exotic love, again when his friend William Rothenstein, the painter, introduced Yeats to the poems of Rabindranath Tagore, and later to the poet himself. Yeats responded with enthusiasm. In Tagore's work, Yeats saw the realization of his own understanding of what poetry should be. He himself wrote the introduction to Tagore's Gitanjali, 1913, affirming his admiration for work springing from a civilization grounded in spiritual knowledge rather than in material power. A world I have dreamed of all my life long, he wrote, a tradition where poetry and religion are the same thing, has passed through the centuries, gathering from learned and unlearned, metaphor and emotion, and carried back again to the multitude the thought of the scholar and the noble. Yeats himself worked on the English versions of several subsequent volumes of Tagore's poems, and the influence of Tagore's translations, with Evelyn Underhill, of a hundred poems of Kabir, is to be seen in the wild swans at Cool and in subsequent volumes. Yeats's studies scanned the entire horizon of this learning of the imagination by way of the Romantic poets, the Platonic tradition, Arabic literature. His remarkable poems based on The Thousand and One Nights, The Gift of Harun al Rashid, 1923, following his marriage to George Hyde Lees, is one of his finest. His debt to the No Theatre of Japan is no less profound. In his own plays, The Dreaming of the Bones and Purgatory, his knowledge of the No uh, uh, the Dreaming of the Bones in Purgatory, which, the Dreaming of the Bones especially, is simply a no play. His knowledge of the no, incidentally, he owed to Ezra Pound, who introduced him to the work of Fenelosa. All these are sources which do not lie within the comp- compass of Western academic scholarship and are only slowly coming within the horizon of Western culture. Nevertheless, it is becoming clear that. Whereas Eliot rightly situated his own work within the Western tradition of Christendom, Yeats foresaw a future of a more universal culture and a more universal spirituality. Some would say, inevitably, his quest, beginning with Theosophy, whose roots are in the Orient, led Yeats full circle to Vedanta. In his last years, he came in full commitment (coughs) to India's spiritual teachings. With his Indian teacher, teacher Sri Purohit Swami, he made those f- <coughs> fine translations of the ten principal Upanishads. And the Swami had already dedicated to Yeats his own translation of the Bhagavad Gita. Had his declining health allowed him to do so, he had intended to follow the Swami to India, but in spirit he had already reached that fountainhead of spiritual knowledge Whose great river has nourished both the eastern and the western worlds since before Socrates to the present day. I have given in barest outline my reasons for seeing Yeats as one of the great seminal minds of this century, and the language of poetry as he understood it as a language of indispensable, an indispensable kind of wisdom. I have not discussed his great poems, <coughs> these you already know, <coughs> but have spoken rather of his thought, of those hard symbolic bones under the skin, a theme academic scholars have been reluctant and probably unqualified to discuss. Whereas scientific knowledge is limited to the measurable world and modern critical writings based on history, sociology and politics, Yate sought in the modern world for all available sources of knowledge of another kind, those immeasurable worlds of meaning, values and truth on which all civilizations before our own have been established, and of which our own is at last becoming aware. It seems that Western civilization has arrived at a point of realization that the material knowledge on which we have prided ourselves is insufficient. Yeats is foremost among those profound minds of our time who has opened for us new worlds, the mental worlds of the imagination, immeasurable and inexhaustible. Thank you.
0: Actually who said the the main task of the poet was to keep the divine vision in times of trouble and I think we've seen beyond any doubt for the last three quarters of an hour Kathleen has demonstrated how in fact Yeats took over this keeping of the vision and I'm bound to say that in our own time I can't think of anybody who has kept the divine vision any better than Kathleen herself in these times of very very deep troubles and um, I also can't help thinking that the proceedings this evening have been given a, a sort of sacred blessing by the wonderful scent that's been blown in the windows, uh, which has been quite exquisite and has complimented your keeping the divine vision, Kathleen. What is that? The, the, the scent coming in from the window has oh, given us a, a sort of sacred blessing to, oh, a, to yes, your talk. Oh, yes,
1: that's, that's lovely <laughs> uh,
0: I understand, Kathleen, that she is willing to take a few questions, if any of you have them. Yes. Would you like to address them to Kathleen? Well, yes.
3: Well, my question it's a bit it's got two parts to it, and it's a bit difficult to um, explain, but I'm very interested in the idea that Yates' idea of, of how he defined tradition. And um, one thing that concerns me is that tradition is dying and yet he seemed to suggest that perhaps tradition wasn't located in culture or place even that it was located in in the, the imagination and so i the first part of my question is is can tradition be lost
1: <laughs> well, Thomas Taylor, from whom I quoted as saying tradition is <coughs> coeval with the universe itself, said that it was lost but always recovered from time to time in all the evolutions of time. Sometimes it's lost, but it's always rediscovered because it corresponds to reality. Plotinus says there is nothing higher than the truth, and truth is what corresponds to what we are as human beings and what the cosmos is in its nature. So it will always be possible to rediscover what is lost just as chemistry or physics could be rediscovered if they were lost because they correspond to a certain kind of reality. That is what tradition is. It isn't something that people have invented or made up it corris- it is that which corresponds to reality and sometimes one just sees something you see a truth and that's it, there's no question about it you, you've rediscovered it, you found it
3: And how do we, um, ourselves, uh, create the right conditions in ourselves to rediscover tradition
1: Will you come to the terminal meetings and seminars? <laughs> 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 Joseph's, for example, is taking Plotinus. Arabinder Basu has just one more seminar on comparing the Christian and the Vedic ideas of God and has just given five very fine lectures. Yes, it has to be taught. And there is always someone one finds, but you know... This is a time when you have to discover these things all over again for yourself, and you have to reject a great deal. And uh, the last paper I wrote, I think, was called Getting Over the Best Education, uh, which uh, I remember, Kumaraswamy, the great aesthetician whom I mentioned and whom we talk about quite a lot in Terminology, he said, it takes four years to get a first-class university education, it takes 40 to get over it. <laughs> and so we have to do an awful lot of unlearning. And uh, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, the first time I met him, asked me how I'd come to the things that I talk about. And I quoted this saying by Kumaraswamy. He said, "I've been working on it for 20." (laughs) And I think we have at this time—it's a time of, 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 well, Yeats would have said, a reversal, a turning of the tide, when really we've got to the end of the possibilities of material civilization, which has produced great, great things in the material sphere. I mean, in technology and all that—it's wonderful. And but it's also brought us to a dead end in terms of values and meanings, and I think many people are. <clears throat> There's a new age, if you like. That was a phrase first used by Blake, and uh, he saw the turning of the tide was coming, uh, and and Yeats saw it also. He produces this elaborate diagram of what he called the gyres, which is that. Uh, And that is based on, I think it's Empedocles, but also Plato's parable, in which at a certain time, God conducts the universe, and then he lets go, and the world unwinds itself in the opposite direction, and then he takes it on again. There are alternations. And Yeats saw, I think, that we live at a moment of transition, when a great material phase has reached its term, and that very fact means that people are looking, again, for values. And it's a very interesting period to be living, at this moment of transition. And it is also very confusing, of course. It's... Yes? All right, Shusha. Yeah, that's all, really.
2: No, but, uh, I, I was just wondering um, whether this view is not over-optimistic. Um, judging what, what we are witnessing at the moment, because a great deal is uh, emphasis is at the moment being put on eugenics and on biology and molecular biology and since the discovery of the double helix and DNA, and there are you have got professors of atheism at, at our <coughs> university like this fellow Dworkin and so on. And the, uh, the tide is so strong that you hardly ever get a word in, except in such circumstances like this. So that somebody, let us say, like Prince Charles, who expresses, who is in a prominent position and expresses uh, an interest in spiritual matters, it's automatically considered as crazy and mad and putting aside and not big yes. terrain and all that. I wonder whether what you're saying, I, I hope you're right, is not over-optimistic and whether we are not still continuing with the new things that say that even the problem of consciousness is secondary.
1: Well, it's up to us, Shusha, isn't it? If you want to listen to these people, you listen to them. If you don't want to listen to them, you don't, yeah, listen, no, to them. The don't listen to them.
2: I don't listen to
1: them. But we are in a minority What I'm saying Well, that important. doesn't matter. The, the, the <laughs> Uh, I mean, a minority has no meaning at all in in the question of truth. Truth, I'm sure, is always in the minority. And the disciples of Jesus were a very small minority in their day. Uh, The the disciples of the Lord Buddha. I mean, all these things begin in a small way. But when the time is right, the tide will turn. And the tide is turning if it's only the New Age. There's... You know, the tide is turning. All these people, they look very impressive. The Roman Empire looked very impressive at the time of St. Paul. Very impressive indeed. Terrific. And um, it it went, crumbled, it went. Our civilization will crumble and go. It's, it's doing so already. You see it disintegrating. Well, supposing the worst happened... Supposing the Lord Shiva opened his third eye and destroyed the world, well, it would serve us damn well right, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't alter the fact of what is truth. Truth does not depend on majorities. And when the majority is wrong, then again and again... uh, well, in in the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, God gets angry with people, he destroys them. Sodom and Gomorrah gets wiped out because there is no substance in falsehood. In truth, there is substance and structure and uh, food to the soul. In falsehood, uh, the sort of thing they talk about in the Sunday papers and the media, there is no substance. So it can't prevail, it's, 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 it's insubstantial. It can collapse, civilization can collapse, it very well might, it is doing so. Well, all right, let it. <laughs> are you really saying, in a sense, when you answered the first question, when you answered the first question, which was in two parts, uh, are you really saying that um, tradition, what we see as cultural tradition, that is, is actually nothing more than habit? there's nothing
0: creative about it at all. Is to do what they did yesterday, so change the guard again, that kind of thing, that's tradition, isn't it, in a sense. And that also happens in art, they gets fixated on a particular level, that's strange. Whereas, uh, real culture is principle, knowledge of correct principles, and it's yeah.
2: that that doesn't die. It leads to sight of it, but the, the principle is in a sense, the source or part, partially the source, of true imagination if the principle are
1: right then the, the imagination can instinctively move into that because it never moves into tradition at all
0: that's
2: culturally it's just a habit like smoking another cigarette or getting
1: up in the morning or something like that yes what people like Levy's call tradition and they're following Eliot very much is historical sequence but uh, the timeless it's it, Tradition, in the sense of of Kumara, Swami, and Yeats is is the relation with the timeless, the abiding reality, uh, the philosophy coeval with the universe itself. Blake said all religions are one, and he meant uh, truth is always itself, and that is the basis of. What it is it's not culture. But no, clarity in relation to these principles. Indeed, there are life principles, and one can actually find them out. And then but but true culture should spring at all times from a contact with the timeless, and that is why we call our organisation the Temenos, which means the precinct of a temple, because it is in the in relation to timeless reality and truth that all the arts should be the language of this vision, and that is the true task of the poets, is to to relate us at all times every moment of time should be related to the timeless that is why there must always be poets in the present you can't you can't rely entirely on the work of shakespeare or yeats or any other poet wordsworth great poets as they have been there must always be this link somehow made by a poet an artist somewhere is always working away at it it's very difficult at the present time and we seem to have a pretty good dearth of, uh, of, of such work, of any stature. Uh, who were the last ones? Well, we would say perhaps David Jones, the... Uh... Kathleen Ryan. Oh, no. Yes. No, no. I'm only a very minor poet. That I'm well. sort of holding the torch till to the stronger hand's going <laughs> to take it <laughs> I from me. I've just had to do it in the absence of anyone really of the statue to do it a sort of weak hand that's carried the torch for a little way but someone else will come and take it no I don't doubt they always will if only because according to the Bhagavad Gita whenever the world (coughs) is in need I will incarnate myself it can't be otherwise yes
0: can I ask you about lineage as compared to tradition. Of course, many Eastern teachers stress lineage rather than tradition, such. They're very keen on the unbroken line back. And of course, that can be broken. And once that broken, it is lost. Uh, do you feel... Uh, do you have a... Uh, you
1: uh, well, civilizations have come and gone, and within a civilization, there is this historic continuity, but that historic continuity finally depends on the metaphysical dimension. If it's only historic sequence, that is not sufficient. And to do Eliot justice, of course, he was looking in Christendom for a sort of thread of truth running through it. And if historical continuity what Levis calls the great tradition of nothing of the sort. It's a very small tradition. It consists of people like Henry James and, and so on. Uh, interesting in a sense, but only, only in a very superficial way. And the, the value of historical continuity finally depends on uh, the metaphysical ground of it. And Christendom, you may say, depends on the initial vision of Christ as um, Judaism on the mission of Moses, Islam on, on that, and of course India sort of goes on forever, but there is always, at the basis of, of any historical cultural development, I believe, a metaphysical source, and when that is totally lost, as it seems to be now, because criticism now, academic and, and the media and the press, of course, are not concerned with values, they are only concerned with destroying values, with negating values, pointing out that something that seemed great is not great. You can never prove that. But that is how it is. We're at a very dark moment. I hope we've reached rock bottom, but rock bottom seems to be a long way down. (laughs) But when that metaphysical source has been exhausted in any culture, that is the end of that civilization. And then, who knows, maybe another civilization will come, an apocatastasis, is that how you pronounce it? (laughs) A uh, a renewal, or else it is terminal. There have been many civilizations before us who have come and gone. And this seems to be a time when uh, there's a great sweeping away of civilizations. Right. Reason thing. enough to be depressed. Yes?
0: Can we just have one more question? Because we have got some other things to say. One is there one more question? Catherine, the, the imagination as satana, the imagination as the way to what is transcendent and eternal. Um, you wouldn't not be suggesting, I'm, I think, that the way that Yeats took is necessarily the way for all. The forms that his imagination took is the way that all should follow that way.
1: No, no, of course not. It, well, in a sense, he took the way of the poet. Yes. And every, everyone has their own way. Uh, but in a sense, the imagination is the structure of our humanity. It is in everyone, and in that sense it is universal, which is why music, poetry, painting communicate with us, and the works of Shakespeare, for example, speak to us all. We don't feel how difficult Shakespeare is. We feel, I always knew that, and he has put it in a way that uh, is acceptable to us. Somehow the great poet, the, the artist, can give a form to something that is universal, with which the rest of us can uh, identify, and it gives cultural unity, because unless there is unity of culture, and Yeats himself said this, there can be no unity of being uh, without unity of culture. That is to say, we must have a shared language, or we can't be a civilization. And that is one of the troubles, I think, at the present time. There is no uh, recognition of a shared language. Curiously enough, I think something like uh, psychology is more like a shared language than the arts, because there is a sort of basic agreement among Jungians, for example, that the human uh, psyche is of such and such a structure. Well, that's insufficient, but it's a beginning. And and we, we understand one another's dreams more readily, perhaps, than we understand Christian theology. At least I do. <laughs> I don't know that that answers the question, but I think we need a unity of culture in order to communicate.
0: It's precisely the unity of culture, which as you point out, He's breaking
1: down. Oh yes, it is. It's gone. Yeah. This is no longer a civilised country.
3: Yeah.
1: But, but in another way, you see this world civilization that, that Yeats perceived. He was not a pessimist. He saw that uh, after the breakdown, there comes a new beginning, yes. something else. Yes. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist either.
0: Well, I'd like to draw the questions to a close now. And just before I thank Kathleen, um, can I just say that Kathleen has very kindly agreed to sign any books that any of you might wish to purchase outside. And if you'd like to bring them to the table uh, to her, she will do so. And uh, you may have spied four bottles of wine over there uh, and some glasses. For those of you who have the time and the inclination, Uh, you are most welcome to have a glass of wine with us before you go. Uh, I'm sure you will all join me in once more thanking Kathleen for the benefit of what amounts to in fact a lifetime's learning of wisdom. Thank you very much, (laughs) Kathleen.